Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 246. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Dan Farina. Lovely to speak with you here today, Kip. Well, I'd like to echo that sentiment for a topic that will circle around one of my favorite topics, curiosity. And the title of this episode, The Questions They Let You Ask, refers to a thought I often have about my curiosity or anyone's curiosity in relationship to the mainstream or most slash normal people, which I would put in quotation marks, and my fear or belief that there are some questions we simply are not allowed to ask, and if anything, many of them I would define as questions I'm most interested in asking or hearing the answers to perhaps on some immature level, simply because I know I'm not allowed to ask them and might be discouraged from doing so. But I'd also like to believe, perhaps with some semblance of maturity, that those are questions I'd be interested in because on a data level, there is so much we don't understand about the people around us. Or said differently, when you really think about it, we know very little about the people in our daily, weekly, monthly, or even annual lives. There are things they don't reveal, and I respect their privacy, but there are also conversations I suspect they don't know how to start, and I observe our culture today, be it in the realms of political disagreements or discussions related to social issues like gender, race, sexual orientation, and others, and I see a lot of truth emerging, and a lot of vehemence, and passion, and enthusiasm, but conflict and friction, and in my mind, Though it may not avert those crises, I do suspect a lot of our current cultural conflict in conversation, if you'll forgive me for that alliteration, is a result of dialogue we haven't had. And while many things can prompt it, I think questions are often a really great way to initiate discussion. I think a big part of the human brain is geared toward trying to create the most low-resolution image of any given situation that it can. If I can store Kip Clark in 15 bits of information instead of 300, then that part of my brain is going to want to tend toward that relatively undifferentiated model. The simpler the map of a given situation, the less energy it takes to process that situation. I think this is why oftentimes when we first experience something, we experience it as a wondrous bundle of nuances, calling out curiosity and wonder and anxiety and fear. But then as we routinely re-encounter that situation, we see less and less of it and feel less and less about it. Anyway, I think part of our aversion to asking questions is a part of us knows that if we ask questions, we're going to reveal the complexity that hides behind all of our oversimplified maps. That makes sense because in that complexity, there lies anxiety and uncertainty. It's easier to ride in a car with a two-dimensional Uber driver, whom you assume drives 24-7 and lives in the car, than to be consciously aware of the fact that you're riding with a human being you don't know who can choose to do literally anything at any moment. Asking questions is a risk. You're risking pulling the floor out from underneath yourself. And it's not always a risk that we're willing to take. I'm really moved by your phrasing of revealing our complexity when we ask questions of others. Because where my mind went when I heard that clause is that in our questions, we're revealing what we're thinking and therefore on a certain level, who we are. You can wear clothes or makeup or various other adornments to change your appearance. 
and show the world, at least to a realistic extent, how you'd like to be perceived and how you would like to appear. But when you ask questions, your language, in a sense, makes raw the contents of your mind and your brain, which is, at the end of the day, the house of, or prison to, your identity. That's where you live. On a certain level, that's where your identity springs from. And so to ask people questions is almost to open one of the windows of that house and say, this is a room of my mind. This is where my mind goes. And there's a distinct vulnerability there. Your point reminds me of something I often think in elevators. You'll notice next time you go in an elevator that everyone's very careful to keep their eyes affixed to corners or to inanimate objects in their hands anything other than the eyes of the people they're awkwardly standing six inches away from. Because whereas we often make contact with unconscious objects, it's considered odd in most situations to be rubbing up against a human stranger. And as they say, the eyes are the window to the soul. So as long as you don't look into that person's eyes and they don't look into yours, you can both pretend, passingly, that the other person isn't really there, or even that they're not really an other person and thereby you avoid the vulnerability inherent in standing so close to, in such a confined space with this other. And what I love about that example, dare I make it a metaphor, is that there are some people, people I suspect are very different than I am, and who have different motives or ways of navigating the world than I do, who simply want to get from point A to point B. And it's unfair of me, though I'll concede I have the shameful tendency to do it, to judge them for that because they're living their own lives. But they would simply like to take the elevator from the first to the 14th floor. And I, being decidedly myself, find that I'm interested to know if they know anyone on the 14th floor already. My mind overflows with questions almost from the moment I hear or learn something, because our world is innumerable threads connected to one another, and I'd like to trace them. But at the same time, I'm aware that we live in a world where people feel scrutinized or judged by attention. And I think understandably so. It's the case that when most people try learning about you or interacting with you, they are, even gently so, often trying to judge you or to understand you in a certain way. When someone asks what you majored in in college or what you do for work, they may not necessarily be trying to put you above or below them in a value sense, but they are trying to put you in different boxes to understand you. Now those and similar questions bring us back to the thrust of this topic for me. We are in a world where, sooner or later, you're likely to encounter another person and interact with them. Even the most reserved among us are likely to have a few relationships in which we probably learn about other people. And I find it very curious to see what things we are or are not allowed to learn. And I think this also comes down to when. There are stages of vulnerability and relationship development that I always find fascinating. But I'm especially intrigued not only by the forbidden questions, but by the commonplace ones. We ask so many of them, how are you? What do you do for work? How was your day? Are you doing anything this weekend? Etc that to me may be genuine, and I can't deny that it would be unfair of me to say that they are all used out of habit or mindlessness, but I do think we often fall into those rows or trenches of questioning simply because they've been well-worn before, because others have made it clear culturally that it's okay to ask those questions and that we haven't always tread into new lands, 
to try new questions or different ways of learning about the people around us. Hearing your point, I'm starting to see the logic of different stages or tiers of vulnerability that we allow ourselves and others to move through as we pass different checkpoints, what sorts of questions we're allowed to ask. The analogy of hiking comes to my mind. The other day I was hiking in Acadia National Park, and I'm somewhat scared of heights, and I was climbing a rather treacherous, rocky path, and I noticed myself looking critically at the people I was hiking with, asking myself whether I could trust them in that potentially dangerous situation. I didn't want to be up there, hanging from a precipice on an iron bar with just anybody. I wanted to know the people I was with would be reliable. I don't think there's too much difference between that sort of physical vulnerability and the more emotional or personal or spiritual vulnerability that comes into play in the domain of asking questions. Bringing back my maps idea from earlier, each time we ask ourselves or someone else a novel question, we threaten to undermine our ways of seeing the world. And our ways of seeing the world are what we use to get what we want. They're what we use to protect ourselves against the infinite complexity of what's beyond us. They're not just maps, they're also shields, means to satisfying all of our needs. And so I think it's reasonable to not want to ask a question that waits around the corner of some of our deepest ways of seeing the world to just about anybody. I think this is part of why therapists need to build up a foundation of rapport with their clients before their clients tend to be willing to get into the real stuff, so to speak. That point really hits home for me, and I should clarify that while I do not see myself as a therapist, either professionally or even in some idealized version of myself, I do want the people around me to feel cared for and heard, and I would love it if they saw themselves in peaceful and self-compassionate ways, whether as a result of my interactions with them or simply because of the path that they are on. And the bridge I am willing to draw between myself and, I think, great therapists is that for me, nuanced or even altogether brand new questions represent thoughts or routes of thinking that people may not have previously considered. Some questions that I've really loved in my life have simply sprung to my mind, and I don't entirely know where they came from except that I was thinking about the topic and have written them down because I'd like to ask them to various people someday, though I recognize wholeheartedly that there is a level of trust and vulnerability inherent to some of the following questions. How do you feel about uncertainty? When was the last time someone told you they love you? Where do you feel your strongest feelings come from? What are you proudest of? What's the best compliment you've ever received? Is there anyone with whom you'd like to get back in touch? And one that I've yet to try out, but that I'm excited to do so someday. Explain something to me that you don't think I'd find interesting. And I recognize that everyone has different relationships to questions or to conversations. I certainly look around me and see that many people I know have a relationship to conversation that is more about exchanging of information, and it's less about play or exploration. And that's entirely their right. But I also know of myself that I really enjoy the exploratory and recreational sides of conversation, which to me, questions like this and others that friends of mine have shared are likely to inspire. I see in that comment, Kip, that you have a great faith in the positive potential of asking and answering questions. I think there's a lot to say in favor of that sort of faith. 
To the extent that you believe that encountering new information is always beneficial, that sort of faith is justified. However, I think there are legitimate points to be made contrary to that. For example, we often ask people the question, how are you? And people tend reflexively to respond to that question in a mundane, superficial manner. Do they do that because they simply don't want to engage and want to continue moving about their life like a robot? Perhaps, and maybe some of the time for each of us. But I think another underlying motivation is that truly answering the question, how are you doing, puts you out on a very long and potentially very thin limb, depending on who you're talking to. If, to illustrate, I'm feeling particularly sad today, and I'm someone who tends to be ashamed about feeling sad, and I respond to someone's how are you with, well, frankly, I'm feeling very, very sad, and that person happens to respond in a really invalidating manner, it's possible that the interaction will buttress the shame in me and not buttress the openness. That answering that question honestly could put barriers in front of future honesty. I suppose that's why I call your relationship to questions faith, because you never know quite what situation you're going to be in whom you're going to be talking to, how you're going to respond. And I agree that in the long run, asking and answering deep questions revivifies a person and allows a person to grow. I don't think that's always the case, and it's certainly not necessarily the case. You're illuminating for me, especially with your chorus of the word faith, that there's an opposite and equal topic that could also describe this conversation. And that, in my mind, would be the answers we aren't allowed to give or are discouraged from giving. I completely relate to your example of someone who feels sadness or negative emotions and feels discouraged from sharing them. And that also gets at why this topic is really meaningful to me. Because I think there are a lot of people who feel a lot of negative or complex emotions, but they don't feel at liberty to discuss them. And indeed, if they don't want to, that's their right. But I do suspect there are a lot of people, even take our country of 300 plus million alone, who feel things they would like to or might benefit from discussing. And it's rather rude or presumptuous to go up to someone and start monologuing. So I suppose I wish for the impossible, the ability to mind read and sense who might like to be asked certain questions or when in a relationship those perfect moments arrive to finally take the next inquisitive step, if you will. And lest the audience think I have absolutely no abilities for social detection whatsoever, it might comfort you to know that I have a few social abilities. I just find myself over-eager to ask questions that I find more meaningful. And on some level, to touch back on your use of the word robot, questions whose answers will remind me that the people around me are unique and have had experiences, feelings, and thoughts, however sensitive, maybe even uncomfortable or cumbersome, that do differentiate them from their neighbors or their peers and coworkers. I think the difficulty you point out in determining when to ask what and to whom is precisely the reason why we've ritualized this whole stage-wise process of working our way into the deeper parts of ourselves and the deeper parts of others in dialogue. In extremely complex situations, because we can't mind read, it's helpful to have a socially determined schema for putting one foot in front of the next. Now, there are flaws to such schemas. One is that they're never sufficiently specific that they can guide you perfectly in any given situation. Another is that you might be a bit of an outlier 
in that you want to get deeper faster than other people. But I see these schemas as helpful guides built up over time through trial and error by society to help us get through the difficult and vulnerable and uncertain aspects of life. To go morbid for a second, take funerals, for example. What could be a bigger source of uncertainty than death? What could be a more powerful generator of emotion? So what do we do when someone dies? The bigger and more emphatic those question marks are about how to behave, the more helpful I think it is for collective wisdom to step in and give us at least a roughshod, low-resolution path forward. For me, death is a brilliant example because you're right, it does generate not only uncertainty, but for those willing to verbalize them, a number of questions because of the enormity of death, beyond which there may be no or few other topics that present so many questions or other still heavy topics that I also notice we aren't really allowed to ask questions of. I think about sexuality and race and gender among other often identity-based societal topics. And don't get me wrong, I understand why, or at least I believe I do, these topics are off-limits for questions. But to take one example, in sexuality, a topic I often find anthropologically fascinating, I understand why people wouldn't want to talk about their sexual lives or experiences. I recognize the vulnerability there. But in an era where we're beginning to talk about harm, confusion, abuse, assault, etc. within that realm, I think that conversations or questions, however uncomfortable and vulnerable, might spark more empathy and more legitimate understanding. But even as I say that, I recognize that questions might be the wrong tool and rather an air of open curiosity. And as has also become clear to me throughout this conversation, Questions are really interesting because, at certain times, they are a social danger of bringing new information to light or conversations that very few of us want to have. And I recognize that where my curiosity exists, so too do other people's needs and desires for safety and privacy. And I'll be especially curious to hear what the audience thinks about this. But Dan, before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about? after listening to this conversation. One question I find myself left with is, what are some of the most common motivations behind asking questions? For example, I've noticed myself asking questions before just to take somebody else off their feet a little bit. And that question is certainly very different in kind from a question born of a deep curiosity. And are there things that a person shouldn't question? Are there bedrocks of reality that it's too dangerous to drill into? Should we erect any barriers around our inquiry? Lastly, and I ask this because this is a question I often ask myself, how does one strike a balance between questioning one's choices, questioning one's motivation and one's value, and taking confident steps forward or letting things be? There are three things I'd love some perspective on. First of all, are there questions, regardless of how they're phrased, that we perceive as falling purely into categories of innocence or malice? Are there purely innocent questions? Is such a thing even possible? And relatedly, what do we do with questions we've never heard? And what do our reactions to them suggest about our faith or lack thereof in other people? 
And finally, with questions we have heard before, perhaps even a lot, is it possible that we no longer hear the question and instead perceive what we are expected to say in response? I think a lot about how are you and the fact that, Dan, as you pointed out, I know there's an answer I'm supposed to give and to an extent it feels like a more rhetorical than legitimate question. And Dan, for sitting down and questioning the world and its ways a little bit today, I appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Kip. It was lovely as expected. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any opinions, comments, or feelings of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes. And as always, we thank you very much for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.